God, our Father, we stand before you as those in need, in a world in turmoil. We ask for you to speak words of life and power to us this morning. Grab us, Lord. Reveal yourself and your Son to us in deeper ways. Pour out your Spirit upon us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Be seated. We are continuing today with our series on the Gospel of John, which is entitled Come and See. And we desperately need to see Jesus. That is the aim of this series. And that's always true, but I would suggest it's perhaps especially true in the midst of our current world in turmoil. We're living in a pandemic with lives that are disrupted and with a general sense of of feeling somewhat off, for lack of a more precise word. We live in a bitterly divided nation as we're watching in the presidential election season and also now with a Supreme Court Justice Senate confirmation hearing that is upon us where there will no doubt be tension and division and bitterness expressed. We also are living in the moment where racial tensions remain high, stirred yet again in the wake of many people's frustration with the outcome of the grand jury in Breonna Taylor's case that came out earlier this week. And and I could go on. We need to see Jesus. And we need to be reminded of his transforming power, a power that has already transformed many of our hearts, a power that can transform our circumstances, and a power that will one day transform our entire world. My hope as we consider this story from John chapter 2 is that we will be encouraged again by Jesus and his transforming power. There's this poignant line in Psalm 78 verse 22 where the psalmist recounts that God rebukes Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. I'm reminded of that today because in circumstances like we're living in now the temptation is always to stop believing to stop trusting in God's saving power and again this story is a reminder of that saving power and I hope that God will encourage us as we look at it together today John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is our text and and in this story Jesus turns about 180 maybe 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine for a village wedding at Cana in Galilee this water into wine story we are told in verse 11 by John the gospel writer is the first of Jesus's miraculous signs through which he revealed his glory Signs in John's gospel are meaningful deeds in and of themselves, but they also point beyond themselves to a larger and richer story and reality and meaning. And the signs that John shares in his gospel, and most scholars agree that there are seven signs in this gospel, they all point to deeper truths about Jesus and his mission. And many have wondered why this one first. Of all the things that Jesus could have done to inaugurate his public ministry, Why this one? Why turning so much water into wine at an obscure wedding in a small town in Galilee, an obscure place? Why is this the way Jesus begins his ministry? And I trust as we look at this this morning that we'll see the answer to that question. We'll see how appropriate this was because this opening act in Jesus's public ministry, in a sense, 
threads all the way through everything that he does. It shows us the theme. And in many ways it contains all of the Christian gospel in this one story. We'll see three things here. What Jesus came to bring, how he brings it, and then how we can receive it or walk into it. So what did Jesus come to bring? What is he saying in this story about his role and what he came to, to bring to us? In verse 10, having tasted the water become wine, the master of the banquet pulls the bridegroom aside and exclaims to him in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine until now. The master of the banquet was thrilled with this turn of events because his job, like an MC, was to make sure that all the guests at this Days-long party, these weddings could last often up to seven days. We're, we're really enjoying themselves. And he knew the crisis that had come upon them. The bridegroom of the wedding feast was probably a bit baffled because his job would have been to provide all of the food and drink that would ensure that the guests at the wedding banquet would, would enjoy themselves. But he knew that this wasn't from him. The reader the servants in the story, Jesus' mother and his disciples all knew what had happened. By miraculously turning water into wine, and not just into wine, but into good wine, the best wine, Jesus rescues these two figures, the master of the feast and the bridegroom, from certain shame and public humiliation. And at the same time, he demonstrates that he is the true master of the banquet, the head of the feast who will provide us lasting joy. The joy is symbolized in this story by both the quantity and the quality of wine, both of which are emphasized. Wine was a symbol of joy in the Jewish world. And Jesus is showing that he has come to bring us life and joy. We're all looking for joy. It is that which moves us to do what we do with our lives, to pursue what we pursue. Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended to in different ways. The the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, end quote. The question is, where will we find it? This miracle that Jesus performs is provoked by a problem that we're told about in verse 3 when the wine was gone the word for when is a simple Greek word most frequently translated and so it might be better to just say and the wine ran out in his commentary on this text Dale Bruner notes that this verse doesn't hint at any note of surprise there's no look or behold or can you believe it just this comment and the wine ran out which seems to suggest that this is expected. This is what life will be like. So says Jesus' mother in verse 3, as she says to him, they have no wine. This is not just a comment about a particular wedding feast 2,000 years ago in Cana in Galilee, but it's a comment about all of life outside of our union with God. The joy of this world, and there is much to be found in it, is fleeting, not lasting. Because when it is disconnected from our creator, 
It cannot last. We, we get this kind of perspective from the preacher in Ecclesiastes who writes, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But Jesus offers us something different. Such quantity and quality of joy that will never end. And this, he says, is what he has come to bring with this first sign. We might ask, well, why won't the wine run out? I mean, in the story, it's obvious. There's 180 gallons of it. It's not going to run out for that feast. But we might ask that question more broadly. And the fact that we are at a feast with abundant wine gives us some hint at the answer. At several points in the Old Testament, a great banquet, a feast with joy, with a superabundance of wine, is the sign of God's coming salvation having come to pass. And again, because wine is the symbol for joy, these feasts are marked by an abundance of it. We read about this in our reading from Amos 9 earlier. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. The prophet Amos is looking forward to the the time when David's kingdom would be restored, when great David's greater son would come and make all things new. And at that time, there would be wine that flows in abundance. Similarly, in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 25, verse 6, another vision of the great coming day of God's salvation. And we read these words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Similarly, in Zechariah 9, We're told when God rescues his people that the young women will flourish with new wine and the men will flourish with grain. In other words, the Old Testament hopes are for the day when God will bring about his final and climactic salvation and they mark that day by a feast with abundant wine. Jesus is pointing us in that direction here. And this Old Testament message is explicitly linked with the messianic hopes of God's people during the intertestamental period. And the clearest example of this linking of the Messiah hopes with the the feasting of God's coming salvation is shown in the Dead Sea Scroll known as the Rule of the Congregation, dated to approximately 100 BC. God's people are depicted in this writing as gathering around the table of community with the Messiah of Israel to drink the new wine. The abundance of, of wine is associated with God's great salvation. And what Jesus is saying is this wine doesn't run out. This wine flows abundantly. This wine produces a lasting joy. And it shouldn't be lost on us either that this is at a wedding feast, a wedding banquet. Often in the Old Testament, God's relationship to his people is portrayed through the metaphor of a wedding. God calls himself the husband of his people. As a pastor, I've had the joy and the privilege many times of officiating over weddings And there's something incredibly powerful about a wedding. It doesn't matter who you are when you sit in the sanctuary and the doors open and the bride walks down to meet her groom. There is something that flutters in the heart of every human being, something primal, something basic. There's a sense in which we know that what we're about to watch unfold of the union of a man and a woman in the context of a marriage, of giving themselves over over completely to one another, that that is something for which we were made. It doesn't matter how hard our experience with marriage has been or how broken we are over not having been married or having been divorced. All of us find our hearts beating at a wedding because a wedding signifies 
realize that we were made for love and for union. And what we learn as we continue to read the scriptures is that the wedding was made not for the sake of man and woman coming together, but as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, it was to show us something deeper. That this is what would, what would point to the reality of, of Christ and his church, of God the creator and his creation being brought together in true union and love by his initiative. That's what this wedding, a wedding shows us. And when God makes his climactic move towards salvation, we see it portrayed in the Old Testament as the renewal of the wedding, the renewal of the marriage relationship between God and his people. We see this in Hosea 2 or Isaiah 54. It's this love and union with our creator that is the wine that never runs out, that is the source of everlasting and eternal joy without which any other joy will constantly fall short. It will run out. And Jesus, with this first sign, is saying, this is what I've come to effect, to bring, to bring about in my life. I am presiding over the one feast, he would say, in which you can find that which you are seeking. There is abundance here. There is extravagant provision. Everywhere else the wine will run out, but with me it never will. Will you come? Will you come to the feast? It's a bit like the invitation in Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is what he came to bring. The fullness of joy. But second, how will this joy be accomplished? How will this great day of God's salvation come about? And, and we see a glimpse of this in this miracle story in Canaan, right here at the beginning of his ministry. Verses three and four in this mysterious exchange with his mother. She seems to know about the wine running out first. So as we saw, she says to Jesus in verse three, they have no more wine. It's all kind of a speculation about why she says this to Jesus, but we know that Mary knew something of the extraordinary nature of her son. She knew that she was with child without having known her husband Joseph. She knew that the wise men from the east had come to pay homage to him as this newborn king. She knew that he had something unique in him and in his identity. And maybe she knew about this family's predicament at the wedding feast before anyone else. And she wants to spare them shame. So she comes to her son and says, they have no more wine. His response is peculiar. Literally, it is what is that to me and to you, woman? Or the, as the NIV says, woman, why do you involve me? Which implies a kind of uh, antagonism between Jesus and his mother. It's not so much there. It's more, what is that to do with me and, to, and with you? What does this have to do with us? And I should say that when he addresses his mother as woman, that is not in a derogatory way. The only other time that, that his mother appears in this gospel is in chapter 19 when Jesus is on the cross. And he addresses her in the same way there with gentleness and compassion, saying, woman, behold your son. Then he says to her these important words. He says, my hour, and it's important that we keep hour here and not replace it with time, because hour is so significant in John's gospel. He says, my hour has not yet come. The hour of Jesus in John's gospel is, of course, the hour of his death. It's the hour of his crucifixion. That hour then comes at last in John chapter 12. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
But right now he's saying to his mother, my hour hasn't yet come. And yet he goes on to perform this miracle. It's, it's, it's as if he's saying the hour isn't here yet when I'm going to bring about this great banquet and this great joy and great salvation. But I'll do something now out of love for this family that reveals my glory that in a way shows what I have come to bring. How will I bring it? Jesus is indicating that he'll bring it through the hour of his death. This is the means by which the good wine will flow in abundance. It is by his going to the cross, his dying a death that he did not deserve, but that you and I did deserve, that he will secure victory over our enemies, sin, evil, and death, and that he will enable forgiveness and the washing of sin away, that enables then a new kind of union with the Father. This is what he would do. Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who takes away the sin of the world. This is what he has come to bring. This salvation and its joy and the cleansing that it brings and the spirit that's poured out upon us as a result of it could not come about through the Jewish customs and ceremonies of that day. Most commentators see represented in the six stone jars that were there for the Jewish ceremonies of washing is a commentary on the fact that Jesus is bringing something new into something old. Elsewhere, Jesus will talk in the Synoptic Gospels about you can't put new wine into old wineskins. It must go into new wineskins. And there's a sense in which that same truth is being communicated here by these six stone jars. All this ceremonial washing cannot make you clean. But the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross would in fact make one clean. It would deal decisively with the problem of sin and enable this new kind of union. As the prologue in John's gospel has said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The old system is surpassed by the new, the new thing that God is doing in the person of his son. In the words of F.F. Bruce, Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. And let's be clear and say that what the Jewish ceremonial washing and systems and the law could not do, nothing else can do as well. No amount of education or success or relationships or scientific knowledge or technological progress can bring lasting joy. Only union with God can. A union affected by a sacrificial death that brings cleansing that enables us to be one with our Father. And that is what comes about by the hour for which Jesus came. This death is the means by which the feasting joy will come. It is the means through which the transforming power of God is unleashed upon the world, dealing the mortal blow to our enemies. It's interesting that our text begins in verse 1 with on the third day, almost to put a resurrection glow around these opening, this opening act of Jesus' public ministry. Because the death didn't, the hour didn't seem like victory. It didn't seem like it was a moment of accomplishment rather but of defeat but three days later of course when Jesus is raised from the dead all becomes clear and suddenly we understand the cross to be the victory that it's proclaimed to be to be that moment of glorification that John's gospel so clearly portrays it as this is how the good wine would flow in abundance through the death of Jesus and that death is transformed by God's power into the beauty of the resurrection 
And this is, of course, the theme of our song as Christian people. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is our song. This is how the joy would come. This is how the wine would flow. Thirdly, then how do we get into this feast? How do we participate in the new wine of God's kingdom? How do we receive it? There's a hint in this story. It's through Mary's faith-filled directive in verse 5. Somehow, again, a bit mysteriously, she heard Jesus' comments to her, what does this have to do with me and you? As an invitation, not as a dismissive response at all. And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What does Jesus tell them to do? It's quite simple. Fill the jars with water, draw some water out of the jars, and take it to the master of the banquet. Fill, draw, and take. Simple commands, simple actions, done with a simple kind of obedience. It's through these actions, of course, on behalf of the servants, that the transforming power of God flows into the banquet of this wedding in Cana. Do whatever he tells you. Now, in the midst of whatever situation that you're in, what is it that Jesus tells us to do most of all in John's gospel? We find the the answer to that question in chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. The people ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent that you believe here is the work most basically it is to believe which means to entrust ourselves to Jesus the encouragement of this story that the transforming power of God might flow in us and even might flow through us like it flowed through the servants in this story is to do whatever he says to simply believe in the midst of the pandemic in the midst of the political turmoil and the cultural and racial turmoil, in the midst of a difficult relationship with your spouse or with a child or with a parent. Do this in the dating relationship that you're in. Do this when income is in short supply. Do this when you're afraid. Do this when you're anxious. Do this when business is booming. Do this when you're frustrated at someone or when someone is upset with you. Believe and trust yourself to Jesus. That means doing whatever he says. And there's a lot that Jesus says. Loving your neighbor, forgiving your brother or your sister, caring for those in need, and so much more that Jesus says to us. This is the response of the disciples after witnessing the miracle. In verse 11, we read that his disciples put their faith in him. This is literally in John's gospel and regularly. They believed into him. And what we need to be careful is that we don't hear they believed in him or put their faith in him as just some kind of mental assent. Rather, it's connected to Mary's charge in verse 5 to do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he says. It is about following, about entrusting, about living a life that simply does what he says. That is what it means to believe in him. And it's this response in the story itself on the 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 level of physical reality in that story that brings the great joy to the feast in that wedding, in that day. But it's this that brings us into the joy of the feast today and every day.
And I should say that this isn't the work of super Christians because there's no such category as a super Christian or a good Christian. There's just a Christian. That's who we all are. But this is how we enter in. This kind of belief, a total receptivity on our parts. We bring nothing. We simply turn to him, entrust ourselves to him, and do what he says. Fill, draw, and take. And the good wine begins to flow, the very best. There is lasting and true joy in union with God. Now, I need to ask, does this mean, as we enter into the feast of God's salvation in Jesus, that our difficult circumstances will be transformed. I've wrestled a bit with this, uh, this text landing in this moment in our culture and in our world. We're living in a pandemic. Lives are turned upside down. All of us feel a little out of sorts. And now we're looking at the story of Jesus's transformative power to bring great joy. I do want to say that this transforming power is not always worked out or reflected in our actual circumstances being favorable. It's important to say this in the midst of this moment, when many of us are hurting and suffering right now, Jesus is still transforming us indeed. And joy and lasting and deep joy is still a reality and a possibility for us indeed. But often this is the case primarily internally. So Paul can say, outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. It is often, in fact, in the difficulty of our circumstances, in our pain and in our suffering and in our sorrow, that Jesus is most present, working his transformative power out in us to bring us into deeper and lasting joy. This is a joy that's connected to our relationship to God and not so much tied to the particular circumstances in our lives. And we must know that and understand that in our world today, especially. And this is reflected for us on the pages of scripture, even in Paul's own life. Remember in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companion Silas are beaten by the authorities and then they're shackled in the jail cell and they're in jail at midnight. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns to God. They're overflowing with joy because their joy is rooted in all that God has done for them at Calvary, at the cross, and in the resurrection, in the hour of Jesus, the hour for which he came. And that's what produces this joy such that it can be expressed and lived out even in the midst of circumstances that are difficult and hard. In those circumstances, we know that the God who sent his son to die on our behalf is also the God who is sovereign over the circumstances in which we live, who is still allowing the good wine to flow to us in the midst of our trials and who cares for us deeply and sees us deeply in the midst of what we are walking through. He is a present and near shepherd of his sheep. At the end of his classic work, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes about joy. He writes, quote, man is more himself. Man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief superficial. Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly man's ancestral instinct for being the right way up, satisfies it supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness something special and, fall, and, and small, end quote. For Christians, in the deepest things, we have joy. We have been invited into the great feast of the Lamb of God. We know who we are and whose we are, and we know what our purpose is in the world, and these are the deep things that matter most. 
Yet we still walk in the trail of tears. We still walk in a world of heartache and sorrow. We are like, as Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We know what it means to be sorrowful. We know what it means to encounter pain and suffering. And yet the deeper reality of our lives, because it is the most basic and the most true about us, is what God has done for us on the cross and what God has brought us into in the marriage feast with the Lamb. We are now unified with him through Jesus our Lord and now indwelt by his spirit. And this is what matters most to us. And this is where the new wine flows in and among all of our circumstances. I want to close with, close, conclude with a thought, which is this, that often Christianity or even Jesus himself is portrayed as someone or as a thing, a religion that leaves the impression that it's largely about a list of things that you can't do or a set of restrictions on what would otherwise be a fun and, and fulfilling life. And of course, there are many behaviors and activities that Christians reject because we believe them to be harmful or unwise, because we believe that God is, has our best in mind and has called us into that best by following him and his word, by doing whatever he tells us. So the purpose of that rejection of those things that often our world proclaims as, as joy-filled is because we know that he knows our good and our best. God has come to bring us great joy. It worries me that our youth often don't know this. Our children, they, they come to think of Christianity as the great joy killer rather than the great joy giver. Are we living a life that our youth, the younger generation, would see that Jesus has come and transformed water into wine and brought us into the great salvation of God, that he's there offering that kind of life and joy to us to walk into? One of my mentors in ministry, a man named Ronnie Stevens, has written some reflections on the Gospel of John. He wrote this, Christians may have the reputation of dampening the fervor of celebration. They did not get that reputation from their king. End quote. Our king is a king who has come to preside over the banquet of God's great salvation feast where the wine flows in abundance, the good and the best wine. And he's offering to us that kind of rich satisfaction in life that produces an overflow of joy within our souls that we can experience in every circumstance of life in our world. May our lives communicate this wonderful reality of Jesus that he kicks off his public ministry with, that this is a ministry that will bring great joy. May our lives reflect that joy as well to all others in our world. And I, I would say especially to our youth and to our children, the transforming power of God brings true joy. Let's pray. God, we worship you and we thank you that you have brought a great feast through the death of your son. In this world of tears and in this present moment of difficulty and of struggle, I pray, oh God, by your grace and by your spirit that you would lead us to the joy of your son. That you would restore to us the joy of your salvation. Oh Lord, that we would drink deeply of his life. May you be gracious and minister to your people, oh God. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. And may we as a people be known as a people who serve a king who presides over a joyful banquet, a feast. 
We pray this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.